Let's pray. Get going. Lord, we thank you for this time. Um, I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit that convicts us uh, concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I pray tonight as we uh, look at reconciliation for one more week and all the things there uh, involved, uh, those things being forgiveness, long-suffering, not keeping a record of wrongs. Lord, even though the study has been prepared, I pray that uh, it would be delivered and communicated and the conversation would be as you would have it uh, for your saints to be equipped for the work of ministry you're calling us, calling us to. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for these times that we get to uh, dig into the word. Um, we just pray that they would be continually fruitful, that we would not be uh, fall into a rut, that we would not see this as just commonplace and something that we deserve. It's a real privilege that we get to do this, and I cherish it week to week. And uh, our hope and our aim is that you would inform us biblically so that we can live lives for your glory, so that we can put it on display in, in every area, in every conversation, in every scenario. Lord, we love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, have you all ever considered and wondered why it is so hard to keep up healthy relationships? That's something we're looking at tonight. Why it is so hard to keep up healthy relationships. What, what's one of the things that happens if you go, let's say you go a few weeks without talking to someone you're normally close to. How does the conversation normally begin when you finally do talk to them? Been, been a while, stranger. What's going on? Do you find that in the absence of conversation and in the absence of living life together that relationships get stronger or weaker? Okay. How does it depend? Uh-huh. I would call that the exception. Because for most of us, I think it's I think there's some things that happen in the absence of conversation and the work that it takes to keep up relationships that, um, it, well, let me ask this. The relationships that you're closest in, uh, what, what, what would you say is the closest relationship you could have on earth? A spouse. And is it, is it always easy? Okay. All right, we're going to wrap it up. Y'all have a good night. <laughs> Call it a night. Well done. Uh, yeah, it, even in the closest relationships, it's still work. There's those times where you haven't seen someone or you haven't heard from someone, and then you begin to think, well, I haven't heard from them. I wonder why I haven't heard from them. Maybe I haven't heard from them because they're upset. Well, are they avoiding me? Am I avoiding them? Am I upset about something? And all of a sudden, you can create these scenarios that really, it, it, there's not a reality to it. There's just this thing that, can continually reiterate that relationships are hard and friendships are hard and we should care about it because in the way that God has designed us, we're to live, in to, live together and, and be worshipers and live as one so as to put his glory on display. So we should really care about these details. And as we consider that it's always difficult to keep up healthy relationships, I was encouraged this week in the preparation of the study and so I hope we're encouraged tonight. 
Um, if this is your first time with us, we're currently going through Genesis, and we're just taking it a verse at a time. Two weeks ago, we got to Genesis 33, and we stopped and kind of slowed down a little bit because we saw these issues of reconciliation and forgiveness between Jacob and Esau particularly. In Genesis, we have been focusing on the life of Jacob for a while. He's, uh, his grandfather is Abraham, and here he has an encounter with Esau. Look at Genesis 33, verse 12. Now, the normal handling of this is that we take it a verse at a time and look at the verse. We've been in these verses for a few weeks now, and so tonight is a little bit different than the normal study because we're, we're looking at a lot of satellite verses to help us understand issues concerning reconciliation and concerning forgiveness, concerning uh, relationships that really glorify the Lord. But we will start in verse 12 and read through. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. What has happened here is that Jacob is coming back from Laban's house where he went. Now, why did he go to Laban's house? For what? Yeah, he, he ran away. He was sent away by his mommy. Either way, uh, he's gone because Esau is mad at him. Why is Esau mad? Stole his birthright. And Esau was comforting himself by planning what? To kill Jacob. So 20 years ago, that's, what, that's the last time he saw his brother. And so we see earlier in Genesis 33 that the Lord has sent him from Laban's home back to, where, back to his home, which he's supposed to be going back to where? Yeah, Bethel. Yeah, he's, go, he's supposed to be going back to Bethel. We're going to find in the next chapter that he actually ends up in Shechem. But here we see it's God's design that he has to face Esau. He has to deal with the differences that there are between he and his brother. Now, Jacob is a believer, and Esau is not a believer. Jacob is a child of the promise. Esau is a child of the flesh. Jacob is loved by the Lord. Esau is hated by the Lord. So there's some serious differences between these two brothers. And last time they saw each other, it was awkward because one wanted to kill the other. And so here they're encountering each other. And what we found is that Jacob's fear should have been the Lord. His fear and dread should have been the Lord so that the Lord would be his sanctuary. But what, what happened with Jacob was that he was so worked up over, oh, Esau's going to kill me, Esau's going to kill me, Esau's going to kill me, send some gifts, don't kill me, send more gifts, don't kill me, send more gifts, don't kill me, till it all comes together and Esau sees him and says, brother, and they weep and they hug. And he says, What's, what, who are all these people? And Jacob says, the Lord's blessed me. And it's a much more cordial reunion than maybe any of us expected. Now Esau is taking it to a whole nother level. Esau is saying, let us journey together. We're burying the hatchet. We're moving forward together. Let us move forward together. And Jacob has a little bit of a different idea of what this reconciliation looks like because they can be reconciled is what we've looked at these last couple of weeks, but it doesn't mean they're buddy-buddy, partnership, 50-50, we're in this thing together from here on out because that will not work. Sometimes relationships are healthiest or can only be healthy because of the uh, parameters that you put on the relationship. Sometimes you don't need to just dwell together in 50-50 and everything's good. Sometimes there needs to be some boundary set. And sometimes the insight that is needed to set those boundaries is what provides for good long-term health in a relationship. So here you have one brother who's a believer, one who's not, and you see that they're going to be reconciled. 
Esau wants to be buddy-buddy. Jacob says no. Verse 12, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail. The nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Jacob's being a drama queen here because we know that he has, in fact, some of the strongest flocks in the area because of the breeding techniques and the blessing of the Lord. Verse 14, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly in the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me uh, and at the pace of the children until I come to see my Lord and seer. So Jacob's saying he's still got the boldness issue. Jacob's not this character study of be like Jacob. Jacob does some good things, but he's still a total wuss in other areas. And so here, what Jacob is saying is, I'll see you in Seir. I'll come visit you. I'll be right behind you. And in fact, he has no plans to go there at all. So Esau said, let me leave some of my people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem which is in the land of Canaan on his way to Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So the scenarios caused us to look at reconciliation, repentance, forgiveness. There was a reality that we looked at last week that injustice is not uncommon. Injustice is not uncommon. What are some ways that we know injustice not to be uncommon? Biblically, practically in life, what are some things y'all have seen? Observations. If you have experienced injustice in any way, what does that look like? <laughs> or know of someone, or read of someone. Okay. Yeah. Okay, um, anybody? The horse hay farm. That was a great example last week. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, the... Re- yeah. Does anyone want to one-up the Africa thing? Anybody? <laughs> yeah, injustice is not uncommon. It doesn't take us a whole lot of work to look very far to see it in some capacity or another. What we've looked at these last few weeks is where there is not forgiveness and where there's no repentance, there will be no reconciliation. Um, a, re- a, p- a small part of that reason is that we are being reconciled to the truth. The truth is central to these things. So if there's no um, repentance, a turning from the sin and an embracing of the truth, there's not going to be reconciliation because there's still lies and falsehood wrapped up in the whole scenario. Last week, I had a list of questions that I, uh, I mentioned, and someone pointed out afterwards that they were great questions, but I answered none of them. Um, I did, in fact, answer some of them. But I would like to look at one question tonight. Um, because I think it helps to answer some of the others. The question that we considered is, is there a difference in reconciliation and forgiveness between someone who is not a believer, as is the case with Jacob and Esau, someone who claims to be a believer but is not a member of my church, and someone who is a believer and is a member of my church? Is it different to be reconciled with each of them? 
Does forgiveness take on some sort of different nuance in each of those scenarios? That's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, And I'm going to follow up with an email to address some of the direct questions, but I'm hoping this helps to answer most of them. Turn to Matthew 18. Now, Matthew 18... The section we're looking at is verses uh, 15 uh, through 20. And this is written to a local church so that they don't forget to do this. And this is what it looks like for those who are members of the same body together. And I want to read this first, and then I want to go back and address what it's like between a believer and an unbeliever, and then so on. And we'll come back to this at the end. If your brother sins against you, now that's... That's the whole reason we're talking about these things. We, we need reconciliation and we need forgiveness because in the first place, someone sinned against God and we sin against each other. And so that's when reconciliation and forgiveness is needed. We should always be leaning in that direction. We should never be okay with, oh, we're not reconciled and I don't give a rip about him anymore. We're done. That's not, that's not the stance that a Christian takes on anything, no matter how hard the offense is. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What we're getting at here, the problem is sin. If there's not forgiveness, then you're going to hold a record of wrongs on their sin. If there's not repentance, you're not actually turning from the sin. We're dealing with the problem, which is sin. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, first, for those outside of the church... You cannot be expected, you cannot expect reconciliation and peace with someone who is not at peace with God or reconciled with God. Now, we've seen that in John 15, and there's a lot of really beautiful um, places where this comes together and where we have seen the preached word on Sunday mornings in the last few weeks, particularly in John 15 and into 16. You cannot expect reconciliation and peace with someone who is not at peace with the Lord and who is not reconciled with the Lord. Now, turn to John 15. If you don't have a Bible, take the blue one, it's yours. We're going to be jumping to a lot of different places tonight so that we can get a really robust understanding of what the Lord expects of us as we do all we can, as much as it depends on us, to live at peace. John 15, verses 18 through 19. Now, we've said that There can't be the same expectation for peace and reconciliation for someone who is not a believer as someone who is a believer. The reason being, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you're speaking the truth from the Lord, what is it going to do according to these verses? Okay, if, it, if it's to the world, 
Someone who's unbelieving, there's a possibility they may hate you. Is there any other possibility? Yeah, that they would repent and follow the Lord. That's why truth is so important. We're going to get to that in a few minutes, but if the world hates you, it hates the Lord before it hates you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So the point is we're not of this world. Uh, Colossians 3 talks about how we don't focus on the things of the world, which is really easy to do, but we're to set our minds on the things above. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you would know the kind of life to live that puts God's glory on display. And so there can't be the same expectation when you're looking to be reconciled with, a, with someone who is not a believer. So there is a, a, there's an implication here that I don't want us to miss that you should probably be interacting in some degree with some people who are not believers. We're not just huddling up and braving the storm of these, this unbelieving mass around us. We're to be aroma, light, and speak truth. Now, so what do I do with one who is of the world? Turn over to Matthew 5. And I encourage you to write these verses down and spend more time in them later. Because reconciliation and forgiveness are things that we all need great work on. And I really believe that this breathed out word is profitable to equip us for every good work, including this. Matthew 5, 44 says this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those who hate you because you're not of the world, possibly. Those who say, I hear your truth, but I'll continue to be your enemy. I'm not going to accept that. Now, my question is this. In light of the role of the Holy Spirit, which we considered on Sunday, what would that prayer look like? What does the Holy Spirit convict us of? Sin? Righteousness? Judgment. Okay. So sin, righteousness, and judgment. So if I'm supposed to pray for my enemies, and I know that when I'm praying, my hope is that the Holy, the Holy Spirit does something I can't do, what is that prayer going to look like if we're going to be biblical in our prayer for our enemy? Pray that he will convict them of their sin. Yes, that they would no longer be an enemy, that they wouldn't stay an enemy, but that they would be a brother. What else? Yeah, that they would know that it's not about just rallying and stop doing bad things, but that Christ is righteousness. Romans 10 says that the Israelites had a, a real zeal for the Lord, but it was not according to knowledge. They were misinformed and uninformed. And so for them, they didn't understand that Christ was the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They thought there was still some other stuff that went with it. And so if we're praying for our enemies, we're praying that they would understand that Christ is the only righteousness. And if Christ's righteousness is not counted as your righteousness, you have no hope of a right standing before the Lord. That would be part of our prayer. What else would the prayer look like? Yeah. I mean, think about how this affects us. A lot of times we continue to perpetuate cycles of uh, not being reconciled, not loving each other, holding a record of wrongs because we want to stand in the place of judgment. I'm right, you're wrong, and I'll keep telling it to you for years to come, 
because I'm looking for the day for you to say, yes, you're right, I'm wrong. If we're praying rightly, it will remind us we're not the judge, particularly for those outside the body. Now, how else will we pray? We believe the Holy Spirit convicts concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Yeah. Yeah, bless and do not bless them do not persecute them. Uh bless those who persecute you. Don't don't return evil vengeance is not yours. Um and how would you what does that look like? Blessing them. What's the best way to bless someone? What are some great ways to bless someone? What are some ways to bless someone? Okay, what what would some of those th- what would some of those things be? Pray for them. That's a great place to start, and maybe pray that you would have opportunity to bless them. <laughs> right. That's good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's lots of practical ways to show the love of Christ and pie lady is far better than bag lady or cat lady. So that's good. <laughs> I'm glad you chose that path. Mhm. Yeah. We have a hard time accepting things from those we are closest to and we know love us the most. So when you have someone who hates someone else, and you're like, how, how can I bless them? It just, it's otherworldly. It's countercultural. It's seemingly counterintuitive. And it makes people stop and scratch their head and say, what is that? That's the goal. That's what we want to happen. Because when they say, what is that? We say, Jesus. And they say, really, tell me more. And hopefully it goes forward from there. That's the goal. But it seems very uh, awkward maybe at the time, but we are not worried about that. Uh, So uh, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, here's something else in this. And I want to make this really clear. As a believer, you have a responsibility to be bright, salty, and aromatic. Now, we're talking about if someone sins against you. Now, if you sin against someone and it's called out, you're a believer. You should know what to do with sin. You put it to death, you repent, you follow Jesus. Now, if someone else is not a believer, they may not know real clearly what to do with sin, correct? So what that means is that when they sin against you and you're looking to be reconciled, to uh, show forgiveness, to put on display that which has been done for you by God, you are to be salty and bright and aromatic. This means you have a responsibility to combat the evil with the truth. As a believer, that's a responsibility you have. I think some of us get this wrong sometimes. As a believer, I'm just supposed to take it. No. As a believer, I'm just supposed to roll over and and let him kick me again. No, not necessarily. 
That's different than turning the other cheek. Combat works of evil with truth. Too too many of us will roll over and allow the process of affliction and injustice to be perpetuated. By God's design, we, we don't like to just watch injustice continue and continue. That's why he calls us to care for orphans and widows and their affliction. We're not supposed to be cool with injustice. That's why he calls Christian men to care for Christian women and for children, to stand up for them to do what's right, to make a bold statement when no one wants to hear it. We don't allow injustice and affliction to be perpetuated without speaking the truth. Speak truth. Turn to 1 Peter 3. This is a different kind of study tonight, not the norm, and we are turning to many different places. 1 Peter 3. I'm going to start in verse 8. I want you to see suffering for righteousness' sake. Now, that means you're suffering for something's sake, for the sake of righteousness, meaning I'm speaking truth about Christ. I don't want that to be swept under the rug. And if it means I suffer, then it means I suffer. I'm not just suffering for the sake of being quiet or passive necessarily, but for righteousness' sake. Verse 8 in 1 Peter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. One of the things that the mind will not do as it is transformed, as you are transformed by the renewal of your mind, it's still a humble mind. Sometimes we gain a lot of knowledge and with it comes arrogance. That that, that knowledge is, is puffing you up and that's backwards. This says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Know what you believe, but you still have a humble mind. You're not a jerk who just goes around tuning everybody up. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. There should be a blessing in sight when we're doing these things. I want to be blessed by the Lord. That's good. You can't say, oh, I don't care about the Lord's blessing. I just do this because I'm good. No, it's his design. You should want his blessing. It's a good thing to pursue that. And this is the means. Whoever desires, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Think about your differences that you have. And immediately a little spark turns into a forest fire. The rudder of the ship steers it down to a mountain or a cliff. Because we can very quickly let our tongue speak evil. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That should be our prayer. Let him turn away from evil and do good. When, you, when evil is face to face with you, you don't try to overcome it with more evil or a more pertinent evil or a seemingly more religious evil. That doesn't even make sense. You turn away and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Just be passively peaceful. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? The Israelites in Romans 10 were not, they were zealous for the Lord, but it had more to do with them than it had to do with the Lord. Because of that, it meant they weren't zealous for what is good. It was self-serving. They were worried about their own glory. 
But if you are, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? The glory of God. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. When someone is sinning against you, in your heart, you honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect because you have a humble mind, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. They're put to shame because they're reviling your good behavior in Christ. They're not put to shame because you dominated. I showed you how dumb you are. Shame. They're put to shame because they're reviling your good behavior in Christ. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. If you're going to suffer because someone's sinning against you, or someone is saying, your truth is not truth, suffer for doing good. If you're going to suffer, suffer for doing good, not for doing evil, not returning evil for evil. This is saying that my hope, if, if, if I am face-to-face with someone I've been sent against, you're trying to give an account with gentleness and respect for the hope that you have, and what you're communicating in that is that my hope is not in how you deal with me. You can say what you want. You can slander. You can scream. You can throw things. You, you may even strike me. But my hope is not in how you deal with me. My hope is in how Christ has dealt with me. If your face is set against me, I'm not as troubled as if God's face were to be set against me. There's a perspective there that we have to have, and it causes sober-mindedness even in maybe a tense situation. Now, the second, for those who are believers but not members of the church you're a member, you are a member of. Now, we're going to take a little time on this because I think that's probably where most of the differences that have been experienced in this room happen. There's a lot of people here who have families that are members of other church, some even locally. And some of the hardest conversations and differences and need for reconciliation that you have is in the relationships that you have with your family because they're at a different church and you're at this church and you're trying to be fully convinced as to what you believe, but you might not seem to be believing the same thing, though it may be within the same faith. Not a different faith. There's one faith. Now, I'm addressing them this way because hopefully those who are professing believers, our hope is that they have a church home where they are like-minded with those they're in covenant with. There may be some differences. Last week, we considered Romans 14. Go ahead and turn there. This is talking about not passing judgment on one another. We've got to be careful because this is not a section of Scripture that talks about being um, just kind of a, you know, whatever faith is to you is fine. And I, it's me. It's something different, but we're cool. Um, this is actually very different, but it shows that, um, well, we'll read it. We'll say what it shows. Romans 14, verse 5, one, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So particularly in this verse, they're talking about you Sabbath on Sunday, I Sabbath on Saturday, and we're fighting each other because of it. And look what it says next. Each one should be fully convinced 
in his own mind. This creates a scenario where there's two people looking at each other, really just wanting to say, um, I think you're wrong because I think I'm right. Isn't that what it creates? This says, be fully convinced in, as to what you believe. One of the worst things you can do is to be wishy-washy in your belief. One of the worst things you can do is to not know what your Bible says and to take a strong stance on something. One of the, it's like when we're smug about our sin. That will turn people off so fast because I know sin in my own life. I'm not going to be smug about it when I'm trying to help someone work through theirs. Be fully convinced as to what you believe. Don't just come in with some big opinion and trumpeting your voice and I think this. Why do you think that? Well, someone told me that and they were very important. That's weak. That's lame. It waters down the whole thing. Be fully convinced. Know what you believe. Spend the time in the Word that is necessary. And know that other people might spend a lot of time in the Word and not land in the exact same place as you and everything. That's what this is talking about. And it can still be called faith. But it has this scenario where you got this person. You're to be fully convinced, person A. Person B, you're to be fully convinced too. Now y'all talk about it. Well, when they go to talk about it, it's awkward because we have a real problem saying to someone else, I think you're wrong. Has anyone ever told you you're wrong? Okay, and how did you receive that? They were wrong. They, were wrong. <laughs> yeah, they didn't know what they were talking about. They were kind of dumb. It, it, we kind of have this weird thing in our culture that is, and I've thought about it this week and I don't, maybe it just comes from this heavy individualism, but it's this, you know what, I think they're wrong. And um, actually the Bible says really clearly they're wrong. But I want to be loving and not tell them they're wrong. And that's unloving. We love people with the truth. We're reconciled to the truth. When we repent, we're turning from sin because what we're doing doesn't line up with the truth. So it's not loving to just say, I think they're wrong in this. I mean, you're willingly letting people walk off a cliff headlong into sin. The thing is, is you don't want them to sin. So you are to be fully convinced because sometimes it may not be a matter of sin. Sometimes it might be. Be fully convinced. Give an account for the hope that you have with gentleness and with patience. Fully convinced. Now, this is a God-ordained tension that most of us would prefer to ignore. You're talking about I mean, baptism, God's sovereignty, election. Ooh, that's a big one. Lord's Supper, church attire. I mean, really, you can go down the list. There's a lot of things you can have a really hard conversation about with someone tomorrow. I don't want to minimize the conversation. I'm just saying there's no, we're not at a shortage of things to disagree on at this point. But I think there's a God-ordained tension that we prefer to ignore. Now, go with me on this. Oddly, we often do this because what are we really concerned about? If I say to someone, you know what? I'm looking at five verses right here, and I think you might be off a little bit. Or I think you might be wrong. What are we really concerned with when we say that, when we, when we don't want to say that to him? What are we really worried about? Hurting their feelings. Want to get your point across? If I say that, what will they think of me? 
Well, see, now we're getting to the root of the real problem. If, I be, if I'm fully convinced as to what I believe, and, and someone is, is either challenging me on that, or there's a difference here, or someone is sinning against me because of it, or I'm sinning against someone because of it, you're putting this out there, you're saying, uh, there's a truth, but I don't want to share it. And the reality is that we are concerned about what they might think of us when we say, I think you're wrong. We're not used to being in a setting where someone just says, uh, I think you're wrong. That's pretty abnormal to most of us. If I'm teaching through something and I totally fumble and someone, one of you says, yeah, I think you're wrong, Gent- lovingly, gently, respectfully, everyone else in the room is going to be really uncomfortable. I'm not used to that, which reveals the root issue that you're really in it for your own glory, if that's your concern. It reveals that your standard for rightness is not God's word. It's really the other person's opinion, and all you're aiming to do is change their opinion. Do you see that? It's subtle. But when you're, when you're wanting to say something clearly, two believers, we're not at the same church, there's some different beliefs, whatever, and you're wanting to communicate something, but then you're saying, you know, I'm fully convinced as to this, but I don't, I, let's just not even talk about it. It's not even worth it. It is worth it. But what you're really getting at is, I don't want to say to you what I think because then you might not like me. So then you're saying, well, if it's right, then it's going to be right on the standard that you and I both say it's right. And I already think it's right, so I'm just trying to convince you to say that it's right. So your standard of rightness is actually the other person's opinion, and your goal is really not necessarily to put God's glory on display as much as it is just to change their opinion. It's crazy. We do that. We do those gymnastics. And sometimes our goal is just change their opinion. If, we, if we're truly in it for God's glory, we're not going to jeopardize his truth for the reason that our reputation is at stake. If you're truly in it for the Lord's glory, you're never going to jeopardize the truth just because, you know, my reputation's at stake. Often when we debate or we argue or we differ, our concern's not even really what others around think either. Sometimes it's just the person with whom you differ. If you were honest, you would, you would actually probably look at the person and say, person who disagrees with me, my goal is not the glory of Christ. My goal and my standard for rightness is that when all of this is over, you will look at me and say, I am stupid, you're right. A lot of us, that's the goal. A lot of us, we get into big, heavy arguments just because we really, rather than putting the glory of God on display, we just want someone else to say, hey, I'm a total idiot. Thank you for showing me how dumb I am. I love you for it. Let's pray. Turn to 2 Corinthians. The whole thing about convincing them to change their opinion, it's, it's as though you're saying, well, it's not going to be right here unless they say it's right. What's right is right. What's true is true, and you state it. Someone may agree, someone may disagree, but truth is truth. And we don't just not state it because we think it's only a matter of what their opinion is. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Now, this is coming after forgiving the sinner, the triumph we have in Christ. Verse 14, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So how is the knowledge of him spread everywhere? 
Say again. Through us. us. What in us? Christ. Could have given the Sunday school. Jesus. Verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. I mean, if you really believe that, that changes the ball game. It's not just a matter of I'm an aroma of my own goodness, and if I look stupid, I'm not going to say anything at all. The aroma of Christ to God. Take it seriously. Be fully convinced as to what you believe. Among those who are perishing, who, among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who, this question is really important, who is sufficient for these things? Really? Me? Sinner? Headstrong? Stubborn? Wanting to be right? I'm supposed to be an aroma of Christ to everyone and all things? Who's sufficient for these things? And what's the implied answer to the question? No one. Not a one of us sitting here. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. You're not just peddling it trying to convince. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That is a, if you're wondering, man, I'm at odds with someone, and, and there needs to be reconciliation, there needs to be forgiveness, I don't know how to do this quite the right way, what do I, go to this verse, I'm not peddling the word, I'm called to be a person, a man of sincerity, commissioned by God, in sight of God, I speak in Christ. When you ask the question, who is sufficient for these things, the question is stating that my rightness over you is not a sufficient aroma. Does that make sense? My rightness over you is not the sufficient aroma that we're looking for here. It's not like you win the argument, booyah, you smell that? It's not enough. My rightness over you is not a sufficient aroma. I believe this means that God can be glorified in disagreements if Christ is kept central. God can be glorified in disagreements if Christ is kept central, particularly of those who are both proclaiming believers. Practically, this means that no matter how clear my proclamation is, no matter how well stated my argument is and how strong it is, it's still insufficient as an aroma. It is the aroma of Christ in us that provides sufficiency. The problem is that many of us are not okay with being wrong. If you say something and everyone disagrees or there's other people on a different page, I mean, my natural tendency is okay. I've only got a limited amount of time to get everybody on the right page. You might be wrong. You might have something more to learn. Some of the most I've learned about what I believe about baptism was from my Presbyterian minister friend who baptizes babies. I had something to learn from him. I didn't baptize the babies. That's not what we do here. But there was something to learn. There's more on the table sometimes. The problem is that many of us are not okay with being wrong. Maybe more than that, we're not okay with someone else thinking that we're wrong. At that point, we're no longer dealing with aroma. We're dealing with perception and its impact on self-glory. Sometimes it's not really a matter of, I I might be wrong. I really got to make my case. Sometimes it's just they think I'm wrong and my glory is at stake. I'm on my throne in my own kingdom. And if I'm going to get knocked off, I got to put up a good argument. 
Yeah. Yeah. It looks like foolishness, really. <laughs> it's not so much what it is or what they think it is, but what I think they think it is. I mean, you just, it's all about your own glory. Again, what is your goal in reconciliation? That's a question we come back to. What is your goal in reconciliation? I think our goal should be God's glory, not our rightness or our own glory. Now turn back to Matthew 18. Now, we read it before and we're going to look closely at one piece. We can deduce that this section on what we refer to as church discipline, which is largely ignored by local churches, was in fact written to local churches to make sure that they do not ignore it. Hear that again. This section that we refer to as church discipline was written to a local church and is largely ignored by local churches. It was written for the fact that they wouldn't ignore it. Verse 15 is where we most often get it wrong. Look at verse 15 right at the beginning. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. What are some of the ways we could get that wrong? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a prayer request. We have a real jerk in the body. I don't want to pray for him by name, but his initials, so, yeah. We could have spent all night on this verse. We could have spent the whole time on this verse because we stink at it so bad. I'm really brokenhearted over how much we stink at this. We have got to be better about doing what the Bible says when we have differences between each other. We have got to be sober-minded enough to say, you know what? As much as I want to call my 15 closest friends and say, you're not going to believe. I need to be sober-minded to do what my Bible says because that's how I'm going to put God's glory on display. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I've got to talk to you about something right now. says, stop. Go to them. Have you, go, have you gone to them? You haven't gone to them. Do they know you're mad? They don't know you're mad. Okay. You have a list here of 50 things you're mad, and they don't even know you're mad. Okay. Um, go to them. Go talk to them. You and them alone. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. In seven years here, I've never heard anybody say, you know what, um, I, I, I heard from like the third or fourth person that I'd sinned against someone, and I was so happy for the, the opportunity to repent of my sin and embrace someone I don't know back into fellowship with, with me. And that, I mean, you feel like it's like a conspiracy. You feel like, well, what else was said? What else? Because if, if I sin... I want the opportunity to, to make it right, to repent. And there it's like I, there's this other mess from their sin. Because if you don't, it's never a problem for you to go straight to the person, ever. But if, if you go to 10 other people, that's your sin. And now you got all these sins mixing together, and that causes division. We're reconciled to the truth. Yeah, maybe it's like catechisms where it's for the kids, but you find the adults benefiting. Um, yeah, that, that's when you sit down. I mean, anytime you're disciplining, it's so much easier to just say, stop it, quit it, don't do that again, quit touching her, don't, you know, and just kind of, you know, reactive. But to take the extra minute and a half it takes to say, okay, is this sin? Are you sinning against her? Okay, you need to repent. That's what we do with sin. And just sitting and taking the time to reason through it biblically. Is there sin? Have you wronged someone? Did you, did you go tell your brother or sister or did you come straight to me? Well, let me show you how we do this. And you take them by the hand and it's helpful. And then the next time you have that with someone else, you're thinking, okay, I need to go to them, like I said to my child, and do the right thing. And that's, uh, that's very helpful. Did you have something, Karen?
Yeah, you step outside of his design and you, see, you find, well, I've got problems I'm going to have to just deal with. I mean, how have we seen that with Jacob? That's where not keeping a record of wrongs, there, there comes a time where you actually have to forgive. You can't just keep talking about it. You can't just keep bringing it up every, every now and again. There's a point where, you know, yeah, maybe you were wronged, but you can't, you can't continue that cycle of, oh, yeah, I forgive him, but I still, you know, let's talk about it and get all fired up again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, we will finish this next week and move on into chapter 34. Let's go ahead and pray and go get the kiddos. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it informs us. Um, Lord, my deep desire is that we would be a people who would submit to your word, no matter how difficult it is or how uncomfortable it is. I pray that the grace and mercy that's been shown to us would absolutely have an influence and impact on if we are sinned against because we know that the sin's really against you. Lord, we know that your wrath is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. And we don't live for our own kingdom, but we're your ambassadors called to speak on your behalf. To be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. We're not to keep a record of wrongs. We're not to seek vengeance. We're to pursue peace as much as it depends on us. We're to pray for our enemies and love those who persecute us. We're to do all we can to preserve the unity that we have as a gift in Christ. Lord, without you, we will fail at every single step. Lord, I pray that we would see the gravity of just winging it, the gravity of what happens when we just decide, you know what, I'm just going to deal with this however I want to deal with it because we know that that does not reflect your glory because it's not in accordance with your truth. It's unrighteousness. And we know what we deserve there. 
Lord, we are very thankful for Christ. I'm thankful that it is not a day in and day out pursuit of trying to get it right and just I'm in, I'm good with God, I'm bad with God, I'm good with God, I'm bad with God. But through all the ups and downs and all the trials through which we grow in character and learn how to persevere and our faith is increased, that in all of that, we can know that it is the righteousness of Christ that is counted as our righteousness and that you do not lose any of your children along the way. We are your children till the end. Lord, we eagerly anticipate the day where each of us can sit in your presence and worship you wholeheartedly without any of the division that largely exists in our worship now. We love you very much, and we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.